Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us. And we have a special episode we'll tell you about uh, in just a moment. It's a special series, actually. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I am thrilled to have my very, very favorite co-host with me, which is my wife, Julianne. So hi, Julianne. Hello, everyone. Julianne's been on the, the uh, podcast a number of times. Uh, so by now you should know her, I would guess. Uh, she just barely got back from leading a tour in Israel and, uh, and Egypt. And we are doing a special series where we're going to do just a short episode each day, uh, maybe on occasion two, but probably just one, uh, about the Holy Week, uh, just to help us all celebrate the Holy Week. So today is the beginning of the Holy Week. Uh, well, not actually when we're recording this, but when you're listening to this, I hope it's the beginning of the Holy Week. Palm Sunday, and or the triumphal entry is what it's often called, and we're really excited to talk about it. But but let's just talk in general about celebrating uh, the Holy Week or Easter. It's not something that as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints we do very much, but I think we've been doing it a little bit more recently, uh, and I think it's fantastic. We have such a big lead up to Christmas, which is wonderful, but honestly, Easter is even more important than Christmas. And uh, we should be celebrating it in as many ways as we can, uh, both to strengthen our testimony, to praise God, to understand things better, to appreciate it better, and for a thousand other ways and reasons. It is good for our soul to celebrate the Holy Week. Yeah, and in fact, I really like something that Neil A. Anderson said. We rejoice with Christians all over the world in his glorious resurrection and in our own promised resurrection. May we prepare for his coming by rehearsing these glorious events over and over in our own minds and with those we love. Oh, that's so perfect. And so we're here to help you with that and to encourage you in that. But we also want to introduce a resource that you may enjoy. Uh, this is a brand new book. It's just out this year. Uh, it's by uh, some of our friends, uh, Eric Huntsman and Trevin Hatch, called Greater Love Hath No Man, a Latter-day Saint guide to celebrating the Easter season. And they have uh, maps. They have uh, appendices with the timeline, uh, and then for each day, even things leading up to Easter or, or Holy Week, uh, so like Lent and things like that to kind of get you prepared. And then uh, for each day, they have the appropriate scriptural readings, some outside material, um, some things to think about, and some suggestions of ways you may want to celebrate it as a family. And so we'll probably draw on this from time to time, but I highly recommend it to you if you want to, to really celebrate the Holy Week and Easter. Uh, I, I really recommend it to you. So why don't we start out by talking about the triumphal entry? Uh, this is the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. Uh, this is when the Savior is staying on uh, with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. So you have the Mount of Olives. All right. You you do make the Mount of Olives. <laughs> okay. Okay. And all right. Uh, I guess most of people can't see what we're doing. But anyway, so you've got the Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem. So if Jerusalem is here on the west side, then you go up over the top of the Mount of Olives and go just a little bit down on that uh, that eastern side. And uh, that's where Bethany is. So each day the Savior is going to have to go up over the top of the Mount of Olives and then go down to Jerusalem. And that's uh, that's really quite a hike. Yeah, and then you go down the Kidron Valley and then back up into uh, Jerusalem itself. It's quite a hike. It's it's a good hike. We've done this a number of times. It's pretty good exercise. They, I'm sure they were in 
in good shape. Tradition is that they had a place that they would often stop and rest along the way, which seems like a good idea to me. Um, it, it really does wear you out. And so uh, uh, that's that's kind of the setting for it. Uh, but this is the one day where he won't actually walk. He calls uh, for his, his disciples to go and find uh, a donkey or an ass. And in, in one of the accounts, in the Matthew account, he has, there are two. One of them's a full, and that seems to be uh, Matthew reading uh, the account where it says that he'll ride on the ass, the full of an ass. Reading that as two or something like that when really it's an ass that is the full of an ass, which all asses are. But anyway, um, uh, so he's certainly only going to ride one, and maybe there's another one with him. It's hard to tell sometimes when you have these different accounts saying different things, exactly what's going on. But... Um, this there's some tremendous symbolism in this some really tremendous symbolism uh some of it is fulfilling that prophecy but some of it comes from the days of solomon and even earlier than that in ancient near eastern tra tradition the tradition is in the near east that you ride a donkey to your coronation and they started doing this before they had horses uh, and so that remains the tradition it's a very important solid piece of a tradition in Israelite history, because when David, so the, the Saul is the first king of Israel, but David is the second, and Solomon succeeding David is the first time you have a son succeeding a father, the first time you have a coronation of a king the way you would expect, and that kind of a thing. And uh, what David does is he has Saul put on his own donkey or his own ass and taken to the gate of the city where the Gihon Spring is. And that's where important things happen in the ancient uh, world and ancient cities is at the gate. And he is anointed king of all Israel uh, there after riding on, on the donkey. So this is, uh, I, it doesn't mention anything about the coronation and the anointing of any other kings of Judah or Israel after that. But I would be really surprised if you didn't have every king of Judah doing the same thing after that. We know there's one exception when there was a child who was hidden in the temple because they were trying to kill all the children. And he's hidden in the temple and then the priests suddenly bring him out and anoint him there at the temple. So that one special circumstance. But I would guess every other king was crowned in the same way. So this is in uh, their image of what it means to be a king and to become a king. What else would you like to add? Yeah, I just think that's a very powerful symbolism that the Savior is drawing drawing on. And and it's not something that would be unknown. It'd be very, uh, very prominent and very obvious to those who had been studying um, and and knew the, the tradition of the kings to yeah. be able to recognize this as something that, our, that the Savior was doing to be able to show who he was. Yeah. And of course, the people recognize it. Uh, so do you want to talk about some of the things that people do or what would you like to talk sure. about? Um, yeah, so the, 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 you have the multitudes coming. So right before this, we have a, a couple of things that draw uh, the people. They, they they are they're aware, like you mentioned, Lazarus raising from the dead, a huge miracle that uh, people are drawn uh, to to him as king. We also have the... Um, fishes and the loaves miracle where they have already just tried to force him to be king uh and they and the savior himself says you you've come because uh you've seen me uh, provide food for you 
And, um, you know, that's such a lesser miracle. And that's not why I'm here. Uh, and again, I'm not here also to be your king in the way that you imagine me to be king. Uh, and so he's always just trying to give this uh, more clear idea of what he is about and what he's here to do. But the people have come in multitudes for their own reasons uh, to seek him to be a king to overthrow uh, Roman rule. Uh, they're very excited. Um, and they, as he is on this uh, this donkey and recognizing it for the um, symbolism that it is about a king coming in. They're even more excited because they're thinking about all these things. This is the time. This is it. Yeah. And, and let's just uh, maybe if you've been listening to the podcast, you've seen us talking about this and you're going to see us continue to talk about this because, of course, we're jumping forward in time for Easter uh, in terms of uh, you know, the gospel uh, and come follow me timeline, right? But we've been talking about people starting to recognize who he is as a prophet or even as a Messiah. Son of God is a different thing. And, and so we'll talk about that in a, in a different episode. But recognizing him as the Messiah is something that a lot of people want and they want him to be their king. And so there has been a lot of, of talk, a whole lot of talk. Is this the Messiah? Is this not? I think it's the Messiah and so on. And, and some a number of people have been waiting for him to come out and say, yes, I am the Messiah. And in their minds, this is that moment. Mm -hmm. He is proclaiming this. He is coming to be king, to get rid of Rome and everything else. Uh, that's what they are seeing this as. And they're ecstatic. And so they're coming in the great multitude. We're in, if you want to follow along, Matthew 21, verse 8. Uh, well, first they put their clothes uh, and set him on the the ass and then on verse eight uh they spread their garments in the way uh on on the ground before the donkey as it comes uh just trying to give that kind of sense of of uh, royalty about it yeah, and preparing the way and making uh, preparing his path right which is fulfillment of prophecy as well and others cut down branches from the trees and straw them in the way so you've probably seen images of uh, this pretty well reflected uh, this idea of the, the clothing and the, the palm fronds laid down and also probably um, fanning him also, uh, although that's not recorded here, but just this kind of royal sort of entry and celebration of who is. And then they say, Hosanna to the son of David. So again, reflective again of who they're recognizing he is, wanting him to be that king. And blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Um, so we see this reflectiveness of wanting him to be king in John 6, 15. And then in verse 10, uh, the people, the leaders are asking, who is this? And the multitude said, this. Well, and and uh, maybe what you said, they, they see, they say the city, all the city was moved. They can tell everyone is a stir. There's something big going on. Right, right. We have the multitudes are, what number would you think these multitudes yeah. are? I have no idea, but but Jerusalem gets so crowded during the Passover with people coming from all over, uh, including from Galilee, which is kind of the hotbed of looking for a Messiah. And uh, so it just, it gets, we know the, the stories are that it gets hard to walk sometimes around Passover in Jerusalem. It gets so crowded. So there are a lot of people. And Josephus has those numbers you, you know, really yeah, huge. I, yeah, he has them really, really huge. I don't know. But. Uh, okay, and so then 
the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of, of Nazareth of Galilee. And then if we turn uh, to Luke's account, uh, we're in Luke 19, verse 40. It's, uh, I, I really love this because it, it, the imagery here helps me really have a sense of that feeling that sometimes we experience when we're having such a powerful spiritual experience. The spirit is on us so much that we feel like there should be some sort of physical manifestation of that moment. Uh, and, and most often there's not, but, but we do see in like church history and other times throughout the scriptures, there is this physical uh, manifestation that just kind of pronounces how powerful the moment is. And I love this here for that reason. And verse 40, uh, well, after what has just happened and the Pharisees are saying, master, rebuke thy disciples for all this big show of this triumphal entry. So they're saying, you know, calm down, calm down this big scene, right? They're, they're nervous for other reasons, right? They don't want this big um, event happening. And, um, but Christ says, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come over near, he beheld the city and wept over it. So we having this very, very powerful moment that Savior is feeling uh, about uh, what's happening, the, the testimony that's being given of who he is, that's so powerful. And, and then also his love for the city itself. And, and those tie together in such a beautiful way. The stones, the city of Jerusalem knows who he is. Even if the people are a little off, there's that strength um, and that of this holiness of the city itself, even that the stones would cry out and then he, the, how much he loves um, Jerusalem and then weeps over it and, and mourns for what will happen uh, because they don't really recognize him for the king, the way of, of who he is actually as king. Um, and then here in this, uh, in Matthew's version, he goes straight to the temple and then he emphasizes his authority in the temple from this moment of kingship to being that the temple is where he is king. He doesn't go to Antonio Fortress. He doesn't go to uh, other, other leadership. He goes to the temple. And what he does there is show that the temple needs to be cleansed. So part and, and of- emphasizes that it is his father's house. So he's emphasizing his relationship with God as he does that. Sorry, keep going. Uh, no, that's exactly right. And so part of uh, what uh, Christ is, is is doing here is actually a piece in the Passover. Uh, the part of the, the Passover is this kind of cleansing idea, including in homes and in their lives and in the temple. And he is drawing on this Passover theme here ahead of Passover to cleanse the temple and which is his father's house, like right. Harry said. Um, and in so in verse 12, and Jesus went to the temple of God and cast out all them that, that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the ta- tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he says, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. So he is casting out the, the bad here that's been uh, introduced into his father's house with authority that he has shown with the triumphal entry and in going to his father's house. 
um, and in a way that can give us a lot of strength in, in seeing the power that he shows and the love that he has for his father and that he does what's needed to be done. Uh, in fact, you've talked about that a few times. Yeah, and it's becoming a theme in the, the podcast. So look for it to continue to be a theme in the podcast. This idea that relationship with the father and only doing the father's will. Well, and also uh, you've talked about this um, need for a savior who has that strength and power mm -hmm. to save us and to do the hard things in our lives that we need to have done. Yes. And and so sometimes people are uncomfortable with this scene of the savior being uh, so forceful and um, and what, how would you describe this better? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's chastising, he's, he's forth. Yeah, yeah, all of that, right? This is uh, the Savior in his fury, in his wrath. Yeah, and we like to think that the Savior is more soft and gentle, but yet we do need a Savior who will do those uh, difficult things for us and uh, for us in our lives, but for us in other ways it needs to be done, like the, to be able to have the temple be a holy place where people can come and worship and have it stay holy. Sometimes things uh, take more drastic measures to make sure that, um, in this case, that the temple is cleansed. And as he is cleansing the temple and he's bringing in those that should be there. And so he, the, the, the blind and the lame came to in the temple and he healed them. And that shows that mercy and that compassion and that side that we're also more used to seeing with our Savior. But continuing to show his power. And his power. Absolutely. And and bringing what should be in the temple. Removing the money changers and bringing in the people who are, are, are ready to be there for the right purpose. Okay. So now maybe <laughs> we should move on to uh, talk about uh, some of the ways you can celebrate this. Both in terms of external celebration and maybe some some things in terms of internal celebration. So uh, the traditional way that people celebrate this, of course, the big one is in Jerusalem. And this is fantastic. We've done this together three times uh, is to take this uh, walk. It starts at a church in Bethphage. So you don't have to go all the way over to Bethany, but you, you start already on the, the western side of the uh, Mount of Olives. But you get palm fronds and you march down. And you march past, you don't actually go into where the, the Gihon Spring would be because that's too hard to get into. But you go into the Church of St. Anne, which is close to where the temple would have been. Um, but you do this, and it's so fantastic to see so many groups from all over the world with their palm fronds singing and praising and celebrating the Savior. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, and uh, so that's the big one. We've done that in a lot of ways as a family we've had even little things where we just like cut out like little palm fronds out of paper and go gone around in our house uh we've done it where we just got anyone from our ward who wanted to when the weather was good enough and and also just grab branches from whatever trees or again call it like paper palm fronds and just marched around a little bit and singing uh and saying hosanna um and we've even done it uh and i think we're going to do it this year where we like purchase palm fronds and have them sent in like you can just order them online and they arrive at your house right life's so easy these days and uh invite the entire neighborhood and get a big group that goes in a route around praising the lord and singing and and uh uh just basically worshiping the lord and being excited about accepting jesus as our king and maybe that's the thing to really stop and think about um uh, so maybe I'll, I'll tell a story about myself and kind of some internal worship, but I don't know if you have more you'd like to share about some other things that you can do on Palm Sunday. 
I think you covered it really well. Okay. So maybe I'll just share a, a story uh, that has really brought this home to me. Uh, I love the idea of Jesus as our king. And we know that. We, we believe in a theocracy. We don't believe in an eternal democracy. Democracies are handy when you don't have a theocracy. Uh, but we believe that eternally we have a theocracy with God and Christ as our king. And that's a wonderful thing. And we learn from King Benjamin that having kings are great when you have a just or a righteous man as your king. So I was in Bethphage one time, the church there in, in Bethphage, where you start the Palm Sunday March, and we we're going to teach our students there. Um, but it was taking a little while for all of them to come in before going to the bathroom, whatever. So I had a while to sit in that church and they have depicted in there paintings of the triumphal entry and the different sayings like Hosanna and, and the son of David and the chief priest saying, uh, who is this? All the world has moved against him. And the savior saying, if, if these were to stop praising, then even the very rocks would cry out, right? So they have all of those things. And I was thinking about how much I was looking forward to the day when Christ would be our king. And in fact, I will recommend to you a, a BYU devotional that I believe was given in December of 2015. And uh, it's about uh, our innate desire to have righteous kings. And uh, the speaker, I can't remember who it was, but a fantastic, fantastic devotional where he actually uses um, the figure of Aslan in uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series, uh, the Narnia series from C.S. Lewis, and the figure of Aragorn from uh, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, and teaches great gospel messages about kings and having a king and looking forward to a king. I, I would recommend that devotional to you as part of your worship. I think it would be great. But I was thinking about how I look forward to when Christ would be our king, and I remember saying in my heart, Oh, how I look forward to and yearn for the day when I can kneel before him and swear fealty to him as you did for a king. And how the spirit said to me, you already have. And I realized it's true that in the covenants I have already made, I have already sworn fealty to Christ as my king. He is my king. And I have made the most solemn of oaths and covenants to have him as my king. And to uh, have him rule over me, or we could say have him prevail in my mind and in my heart more than anything else. And to worship him with all my heart, might, mind, and strength. And I think that it's worthwhile uh, to take some time on Palm Sunday and think about how, how am I living my life? Am I living it according to that loyalty? Or am I more loyal to another leader? Social leader or an intellectual leader or something along those lines. Uh, or as Christ really my king, am I keeping my oath of fealty, my covenants? Am I acting like he's my king? Am I serving him as a good servant would serve his king? And those are thoughts that can make Palm Sunday become all the more powerful to you as they accepted Christ as his king. And I think it's worth noting, Christ is done hiding here, right? This is as public as can be. This is a scene. And this is Christ acknowledging and finally letting people acknowledge him as king, even though he knows he's not going to be at that moment the kind of king most of them are looking for. He is acknowledging he is their king. Mm -hmm. And he, he lets that happen. And hopefully we can, in our own hearts, throw our cloaks on the ground before him and our palm fronds 
and shout Hosanna to God and, and praise him for the son of David that comes to rule in our hearts and in our minds. Yes, absolutely. And the Savior himself recognizes after after this triumphal entry and this this time in the temple, and he knows his time has come uh, for this last week. Uh, and in John 12, 23, Jesus answered his disciples and said, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Uh, and I think this is him recognizing that that moment of uh, moving into that glory and uh, helping them to see that. But I also love this because I feel like this is actually uh, something that helped me understand the wedding at Cana just a little bit better. Mm. The, that, that marriage, because um, when, when the Savior speaks to his mom, uh, we're looking in John 2 and verse 4. Okay, when John, when the Savior speaks to his mom, when she has come to him saying that she uh, was needing help with the, the with the wedding and and needing that uh, that wine, um, and his response to his mother, uh, if we're looking specifically in the the JST, the Joseph Smith translation, in verse four, um, he says, "Woman, what will thou have me do for thee?" Uh, I think this is a very tender thing. He's he's in a way he's responding to his mom, asking mom, how can I help you? I can see you're distressed. What can I do for you? This is very, this seems like how the savior would respond. And then he says, that will I do for mine hour is not yet come. So sometimes I've heard people uh, refer to this saying, that his hour for miracles has not come, but he'll do this for his mom. But I don't think that this, we already know that the Savior only does the will of his father. So he's not going to make an exception right now in any sort of way. But what he's saying, I think, is his ending is not come. So going back to John 12, 23, the hour is come. And so at this point, he knows his life has come to an end for this great sacrifice for his atoning sacrifice and his crucifixion and that his opportunity to be able to be there for his mother at this point will come to an end um and we see that on the cross as he as he asks john to care for his mother but here in the wedding the marriage of cana he is saying my my hour is not yet come what can i do for you mom anyway i just think that's a, a tender thing but here uh, the savior is recognizing this is, this is the end, uh, the beginning of the end right. of this uh, mortal life for, for him. And I think there's double meaning in that phrase. Uh, the hour has come that I should be glorified because in some ways he's going to be glorified by people accepting him as king, but that's the small part of the, uh, his glorification. His true glorification comes in his suffering in Gethsemane, his suffering on the cross, his death and his resurrection. That's the full glorification, and that's what will enable him to truly be our king and the king who conquers all for us. Happy Palm Sunday!